This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's the 120th anniversary of the birth of Tunku Abdul Rahman Putra Al-Hajj today. Lest we forget, he was our first Prime Minister and Malaya and Malaysia's illustrious founding father. Tunku left footprints on the sands of time that if we were to follow, may help us to restore our past reputation as an exemplary society in which diverse races, religions and regions can live together in peace, harmony and prosperity. So to reminisce about Tunku's remarkable life and his enduring legacy. Joining me on the show today are Emeritus Professor Dato Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and a trustee with Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and Johan Rosali Watuth. He is also a trustee with Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. Welcome gentlemen. How are you today? Thank you. It's a privilege to participate in this program to commemorate uh, the 120th birthday of our Bapa Malaysia. Lovely to have both of you back. So, you know, we, we the, I mean, the three of us last caught up with Aida. Uh, this was like just before Merdeka, yeah? And we were talking also about uh, Tunku's uh, legacy. But now, you know, we want to celebrate 120 years uh, since his birth. Um, Johan, maybe if I can ask you, you know, just to do that little bit of introduction, I don't know, maybe for the younger generation, who knows, people who are not familiar, talk, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about our Bapa Malaysia, Tunku Abdul Rahman. You know, what were some of the aspects of his his personality that you would say deserve remembrance? I'd love to, Julia. Thank you very much for having both uh, Professor Shah and I back uh, to talk about our Bapa Kemerdekaan. Um, I find it really interesting that despite having passed 33 years ago, we're still talking today about Tunku Abdul Rahman. Um, it makes me wonder how many of Malaysia's leaders today will be discussed so long after they've passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, this tells us, I think, a lot about the sort of man that Tunku once was. And one of my regrets as a member of the younger generation, I hope Professor Shah doesn't mind me saying that, is that I never got to know Tunku in real life. Um, If ever a time machine was invented, uh, Tunku would probably be top of the list of people I'd very much like to meet, uh, especially Tunku at his prime. I feel that he was someone that I would probably enjoy speaking to very much with. Uh, From everything I've read about him, there doesn't seem to be uh, very much guile or cunning about him. Mm. Uh, he just seems to be a very decent, jovial, and really smart man who was comfortable and confident in his own skin. Um, probably someone whom I would enjoy having a nice chat with over a good meal. And unfortunately, Tunku passed away in 1990 when I was only 11 years old. So all I have to remember and know him by are the words of others. And there are lots of books written uh, by others about his life and times. Uh, one of my favorite books is actually by the late Dato Tan Chin Nam, uh, who wrote a biography called Never Say I Assume. I highly recommend any of you can get your hands on it to read it. Uh, Dato Tan enjoyed a very close re- uh, friendship uh, with the late Tunku, and indeed, an entire chapter of his biography was dedicated to his great friend. He refers to Tunku fondly as Tunku Washington, equating <laughs> Malaysia. And uh, he talks about Tunku's personality and habits a lot. It's a well-known fact that Tunku was someone who enjoyed life to the fullest. Uh, He loved his dinners. He loved dancing. He was a great golfer, amongst many other pastimes. And so one passage of the book in particular stuck in my mind. Datuk Tan mentioned that despite Tunku's great love for all things worldly, he never missed a single prayer. He would drop whatever it was he was doing, and he would prioritize his communion with Allah. In squaring these apparently very opposite aspects of Tunku's life, 
Datuk Tan recalled something that Tunku wrote in his column, Challenging Times, in which Tunku said, Islamic values, according to my understanding, mean peace, love, cooperation, honesty, punctuality, hard work, and honor. In other words, Islamic values are human virtues. Datuk Tan also mentioned that Tunku even agreed with John Wesley, the founder of Methodist Christianity, who said that people should do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, and as long as you ever can. And in his humility, Tunku acknowledged that he fell far short of these ideals. Indeed, he was always pointing out his own shortcomings. He would even joke about it in private and occasionally in public as well. Once, when the subject of stoning people for adultery in Malaysia was raised, Tunku quipped, if ever such a law was passed in the country, there might not be enough stones available. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is an, a great acknowledgement of Tunku as our father of our nation. He was a man for whom substance must always triumph over form. He wasn't someone who pretended to be perfect. He knew that he was just a man with many frailties who was trying to be the best person he could within the constraints of his mortality. And this is in great contrast to many leaders of Malaysia today who make great pretense of outward piety, but who commit the most heinous and terrible sins behind closed doors. And I think this is why we miss Tunku so much and we find it so difficult to move on despite the passage of time since his passing. He was a truly unique and singular Malaysian, a leader amongst all leaders. Beautiful. Yeah, that, that was really, that that was a really beautiful, beautiful uh, tribute, Johan. And we've not seen a leader like him, right? Or many of us feel that way. You know, what would you say Tunku's role was in laying the foundation of our own political system? That's a really big question, and uh, I'll try my best to answer it, uh, but do bear in mind, I'm an entrepreneur by profession, <laughs> economist by training, not a historian. Sure. There's, another, there's another great book, actually, about Tunku called Dialogue, uh, which I tend to reread over time that covers Tunku's thinking on a broad range of topics. And in the book, there's a piece written by Tunku Razali, Hamza Kuli, which I find very interesting. Um, Kuli outlines how Tunku grappled with the uniquely and highly racialized elements of Malaysian politics, mm. something which we've had to contend ourselves with since Merdeka. In his piece, uh, Kuli shares that although the alliance model that Tunku instituted was an amalgam of various race-based parties, it was never meant to be a permanent solution. It was meant to be just a temporary way of resolving conflict in a deeply divided society. Cooley called it um, an interim workaround. And mm. in his piece, Cooley struck a very optimistic note that Malaysians may be able to move on beyond a racial-based political system. Now, here's the interesting part. The book, Dialogue, was published six years ago. And unfortunately, <laughs> over the last six years, I don't think things have changed that much. Right? Uh, just that. recently, when BFM interviewed Kairi Jamaluddin yeah. in the aftermath yeah. removal from UMNO, he was asked a very pointed question. You've been a member of a race-based party for 23 years. And has that consideration changed? The question was asked in terms of whether KJ would consider joining another party, perhaps one which wasn't based on racial identity. And KJ's answer was that he was a member of a race-based party within a multiracial coalition where there are layered dynamics within BN, but the same could be argued of PH. Correct. So six years after Merdeka, 33 years after Tunku's passing, 
it seems that what was once seen as an interim workaround, in the words of Kuli, is something that's a lot more permanent than even Tunku himself envisaged. I think if nothing else, I feel that's a warning for all of us in the present day Malaysia. Be careful what compromises we make today, especially when putting systems and models in place. We may end up living with our compromises for a very, very long time. To probably agree that perhaps Malaysia today would be a very different place if he had tried, if we had tried to push a more integrated model of politics back then. But then again, hindsight is always 2020, isn't it? Yeah. And that's something that Prof, you always talk about, you know, he had to do so many negotiations where he had to be, you know, so accommodating to so many different people. And in that situation, he did the absolute best that he could. Um, What would you say was one of Tunku's greatest challenges? I think his greatest challenge was uh, to secure inter-ethnic cooperation. I think that was his dream and his mission and his greatest challenge. Tunku was a great reconciler. And uh, bringing diverse people together in 1955 when the alliance was facing an election in 1957, Mardeka, and again in 1963 when Malaya was to transform to Malaysia. I think these were his strong points, bringing people together. Though he was the head of an ethnic party um, since 1951, he did work to bring the very disparate racial and religious communities of the country together under one political platform. Now, I generally agree with what Johan said, but you know, even if you have a non-racial party or a um, uh, party uh, free of any rigid ideology, within that party itself, there'll be a right wing and a left wing and a centrist wing. So diversity, I'm afraid, is, uh, Johan, it's... Uh, uh, part of life. It's a question of how we how we describe it. Um, Tunku um, accepted the fact that Malaysia was deeply divided. Uh, these are the words of Johan, deeply divided nation in terms of race and religion. And uh, in fact, uh, w- one of our very unique aspects, troublesome aspects is how ethnicity and religion are combined together into one. So Tunku had to face all these The alliance that he forged in 1955 was the precursor to almost all future power-sharing arrangements, including the unity government today. Mm. Now, these coalitions are built on an overwhelming spirit of accommodation Mm. between the races, uh, a moderateness of spirit, and an absence of the kind of passions, zeal, and ideological convictions that in other plural societies have left a heritage of bitterness. So I think that was his great challenge uh, to bring different people together and to work towards uh, a situation where unity need not mean uniformity, where everyone could have a stake in the nation. Thank you. Okay. All right, let's just go for a quick break, gentlemen. When we come back, I need to get Prof's opinions on, you know, the, the constitution and to see what the role that Tunku played, especially in recognising our diversity and our pluralism. I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and a trustee with Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman. Also joining us, Johan Rosali Watuth. He is a trustee with Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman as well. We are commemorating the 120th anniversary of Tunku Abdul Rahman's birth. So we're celebrating 
celebrating his enduring legacy. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it right here on Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Jillet Jacobs. Joining me today are Johan Rosali Watuth. He's a trustee with the Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and Emeritus Professor Datuk Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and a trustee with the Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman as well. So yes, as you guessed it, we are celebrating Tunku Abdul Rahman's enduring legacy today. Today, the 8th of February 2023, is the 120th anniversary of Tunku's birth. So we are commemorating and remembering him, you know, lest we forget, of course, right? Um, so, Prof, this is something we talk about a lot on the show, uh, on Law and Behold, you know, uh, the role that Tunku played in the uh, federal constitution. Um, and you always talk about that balance that he had to strike. So to what extent would you say that the 1957 constitution uh, recognised Malaysia's diversity and also its pluralism? Yes. Actually, on the issue of ethnic cooperation and balancing of interests, uh, surely um, Tunku played a very significant role. But I just want to mention that uh, um, the constitution that was drafted in 1957 sought to reconcile the irreconcilable in many, many areas besides our ethnic relations. For example, a strong central government went hand in hand with the desire of the federated states for some autonomy. Uh, many of the indigenous features of the Malay archipelago uh, were combined with modern characteristics of democratic governance, like elections on the principle of universal adult franchise. Um, a, an absolute monarchy uh, was reconciled with the modern notions of constitutional monarchy. Then while preserving the special position of the Malays, um, the constitution also included many guarantees of the rights of the minorities. In 1963, um, we gave to Sabah, Sarawak and Singapore considerable autonomy in the executive, legislative, judicial and financial fields. Now, this was quite unique because in federal systems, states must be generally equal to each other. But in 1963, the arrangement that was made was that Sabah, Sarawak, Singapore would have a special arrangement. Uh, not something that is entirely unknown. For example, Quebec in Canada uh, had such a similar arrangement. Kashmir in India till 2019 had such an arrangement. But it was nevertheless an effort to walk the middle path. Um, among the indigenous or autochthonous Features of the Malay archipelago that the constitution adopted were the unique system of multiple Malay monarchies, then Malay reserve lands, Islam as is the religion of the federation, affirmative action provisions for the Malays, and later on for the natives of Sabah Sarawak, Malay customs, Bahasa Malayu as the official language, and weightage for rural areas in the drawing up of electoral boundaries. But the important thing that is often uh, not recognized, uh, Juliet, is this, that at the same time, along with these ethnic features, these Malay Muslim features were balanced by many provisions suitable for our dazzlingly diverse multiracial and multireligious society. For example, our provisions for citizenship have no mention whatsoever of race or religion. 
The electoral process grants rights to all citizens, irrespective of race or religion. Everyone has the right to vote and to contest for public office. Uh, I know many people will be surprised, but at the federal level, except for the position of the young Dipartonagong, membership of the judiciary, the cabinet, parliament, the public services, the special commissions are open to all citizens. Islam is the religion of the federation in Article 3, Clause 1. But Article 3, Clause 4 at the same time says nothing in this article derogates from any other provision of the Constitution, which means that we are not a theocratic state. Um, Sharia law does not apply to non-Muslims. All religious communities are allowed to profess and practice their faith in peace and harmony. This is very large area, so I'll just mention very large area. I'll just mention one point uh, to, to mention the balance. For example, though Article 89 reserves some lands for the Malays, Malay reserve lands, it also provides that no non-Malay land shall be appropriated for Malay reserves. So I think all in all, Tunku Abdurrahman and his brethren um, in 1957 chose a mosaic and not a melting pot for this nation's blueprint. I know he was ahead of his time, um, um, but this is something that we need to revive. Thank you. Okay. And, you know, in walking that middle path, right, Prof, you know, uh, Tunku is often accused of not being enough of a Malay nationalist, right? Uh, and I, I know we've spoken about this, but yeah, you know, would you care to uh, refute that? Uh, that's really a very unfair charge because um, Tunku was trying to balance his role as leader of an ethnic Malay party with his role as the leader of a dazzlingly diverse nation. Uh, let's take a few examples. The Reed Commission had imposed a 15-year time limit on Article 153's special position for Malays. Tunku got that 15-year time limit lifted. Instead, the Constitution says these reservations and quotas will be reasonable and they will be in as long as necessary. Mm -hmm. So the concept of necessity, reasonableness, and proportions was added rather than actually a time limit. Then the Reed Commission favored double citizenship, but Tunku opposed that. The Reed Commission wished to allow the usage of multiple languages in the, in the legislatures, but Tunku was not agreeable. He said, multiple languages should only be with the permission of the speaker. The Reed Commission did not include, and that's very surprising to many people, it did not include any provision on Islam as the religion of the Federation. But Tunku and uh, Justice Hamid, who was actually uh, from Pakistan, member of the Reed Commission, they felt that about 25 countries have a state religion and therefore um, Islam could be put in as the religion of the Federation, but with freedom to all other communities. Um, unknown to some, actually, Tunku played a leading role in the establishment of the Organization of Islamic Countries. And um, despite what Johan pointed out earlier beautifully, he led a full life. And at the same time, actually, he was the first Secretary General of the Islamic uh, Organization. Uh, so uh, I, I think he was deeply aware of the aspirations of the Malay majority 
but at the, at the same time, very conscious of the fact that he was the prime minister for all citizens of Malaysia. And, and, you know, Johan, earlier you pointed out, you know, that he was, yes, you know, primarily a very religious man, you know, but he was also very real. Um, but talk to me about that that same question that I asked Prof, you know, do you think that he was, I mean, he was accused, of course, of not being, Mal- you know, Malay enough, right? Not being enough of a Malay nationalist. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I, I tend to agree with Prof Shad here, actually. I think uh, Tunku belonged to a very different era, uh, one which would be very difficult to understand given the context of our country today. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example, uh, just picking on something that Prof Shad mentioned very briefly earlier. At the 18th Amno General Assembly in May 1965, Tunku was accused of being too tolerant and mild in his yeah. dealings with Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah. Right. So I think this is where a lot of the accusation of him not being enough of a Malay nationalist probably arose from. And, um, you know, Tunku said, they, uh, they here being Amno, charged me with being soft, but it was not a question of my taking on Lee Kuan Yew in single combat like knights of old, <laughs> nor was it about letting our forces fight it out with Singaporean soldiers. What was of immediate concern to me was to prevent the outbreak of violence that would cause innocent lives in either Malaya or Singapore. So two choices lay before me, Tunku said. One, take positive, which I read to mean military action against Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, or two, break with Singapore and save the nation from a bloodbath. These are Tunku's words, yeah, not mine. Mm. Now, in the context of Tunku's era, I think Malay nationalism was not about being provocative. Um, I think Tunku understood that very, very well. He didn't want to incite violence in the streets because for him, even one drop of innocent Malay blood spilt, man, woman or child, would be a tragedy to him. Um, It would not give the Malays a better future. And nothing, not even a political victory for Tunku, could ever be worth such a price to him. And in that sense, I think Tunku was a Malay statesman of the highest order. For him, the preservation of Malay lives at all costs was all that mattered to him. Tunku had a very forward-looking view, I think, of Malay nationalism. To him, preserving Malay lives was about preserving Malay futures, and he knew a better future for the Malays could only be achieved when all the diverse peoples that share Malaysian soil become shareholders in that same Malay future as well. So that's my personal take on what Tunku's Malay nationalism was all about. Mm -hmm. It's about a shared future. I think something that is a bit lacking today, wouldn't you say? Indeed, um, indeed. indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No comment. No comment. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, speaking about Lee Kuan Yew and speaking about, you know, the formation of Malaysia, um, uh, maybe, Prof, you want to take this, you know, what would you say Tunku's role was in the formation of Malaysia back in 1963? Ah, that's a very, very significant and complicated role. In 1963, Tunku negotiated with the British the leaders of Borneo and Singapore for the formation of Malaysia with special autonomy for these uh, three regions. Now, there's a difference of of opinion, of course, uh, on whether Sabah and Sarawak were given too much autonomy and Singapore was given too much autonomy. But as Johan correctly pointed out, Tunku was trying to keep things peaceful, keep things balanced. Now, what I can say is this, that in many federations around the world, Some regions are recognized as unique and distinct, and special autonomy provisions are adopted. I mentioned earlier Quebec and Kashmir. There are actually other examples as well. Now, these are 
clear examples of asymmetrical federal arrangements. In other words, some regions are given more autonomy. Look at Indonesia, Aceh is given more autonomy. In the Philippines also, the southern part is given a little bit more autonomy. Uh, in case um, we forget, the territories of Malaya expanded two and a half times when Malaysia was formed. There were also vast human and material resources that Sabah, Sarawak, Singapore contributed to Malaysia. So I think the special autonomy, special concessions in the area of legislative power, executive power, judicial power, financial power was entirely justified. Uh, sadly, things didn't work out well with the merger with Singapore and relation with Sabah, Sarawak are also in need of heart-to-heart -heart reassessment. I I'm happy to note that some of this reassessment is taking place. But of course, we have to wait and see to see how finally things uh, work out. Uh, in politics, there's always a difference between what is promised and what is delivered. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Um, and, and, you know, speaking of politics again, um, I think we all remember, I mean, just looking back at GE, uh, GE15, right? Um, I think it became quite apparent to, I think, any of us, right, that uh, polarization is on the rise, right? We saw that, um, you know, what... What do you think about our future in terms of, you know, our racial, religious and, and, and also regional relations? You know, is it uh, too late to stem the tide of extremism? You know, can we return to that, you know, sort of winning formula of uh, unity in diversity? Johan, you want to take that first? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I think uh, you summed it up pretty well. Um, uh, as a nation, I think we're really at a crossroads today. Um, yeah. You know, without having to go into too much detail, you've hinted at this, but the results of the most recent elections clearly shows that divisions amongst our people run deep. Um, you know, on his 120th birthday, how I wish Tunku was still with us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, can we imagine if he was, perhaps he would find the strength to blow out 120 candles on his cake. <laughs> and he may wish for a Malaysia where there is harmony that harmony giving birth to a nation that was politically, economically, socially, and culturally progressive. He might even have the strength to do more than wish. He might be able to guide us too. And sadly, I think all of that is just wishful thinking. The reality is that the father of our nation is long gone, and we stand alone without his hand guiding ours. And um, you know, I think it is left to those of us who are still here today to play our parts in that journey uh, to make that journey a possibility and perhaps one day even a reality. Thank you, Johan. Uh, Prof, anything? Uh, would you like to uh, tackle that same question, Prof? Yeah, yeah. Actually, this this role of bringing people together, building bridges of understanding, dismantling walls of separation, uh, this is a role that has to be played in many, many societies, including the developed societies of the USA and uh, many other European nations. Uh, I think we all have a role to play. I, I want to answer your question, whether it is too late to stem the tide of extremism. Uh, no, Juliet, it's never too late. But of course, there is a lot of work to be done. And there is a role for all of us. Ordinary citizens have a role. Parents, of course, have a role. The education ministry, the government, um, our MPs, our leaders, the media, we all have a role. Uh, from the point of view of ordinary citizens, you and me, well, we have no power, 
but we have the ability to plant seeds of understanding, tolerance, and mutual respect in our neighborhood, in our office, in our classroom, uh, and in any association that we are member of. I think it is within uh, our power to build bridges of understanding. We should reach out and search out for commonalities, and indeed, there are so many. We should recognize our diversity as an asset and not a liability. We should distinguish between racism, which is hatred for others and a desire to keep them down, and a positive affirmative desire to help a marginalized group, not necessarily our own, to come up, to come up to the level of others. I think we should, as parents, we should expose our kids to multiracial experiences. I think the education ministry must adopt the policy of promoting constitutional literacy. I know this will make some of you smile because I'm a student of constitutional law, but I really do honestly feel that if there were better knowledge of our constitution's provisions for compromises and mutual understanding, I think that would neutralize some of the racism and religious bigotry that exists in our society. So I think we need constitutional literacy at all levels. The government must return to the constitution's path of moderation. May I point out that USM professor Ahmed Fauzi Abdul Hamid, uh, a professor I greatly admire, he said that due to the Arabization of Malay society and the infusion of the Saudi-based Salafist discourse, which I know is undergoing some changes. Um, a narrow punitive version of Islam is replacing the admirable centuries-old Malay tradition of inclusiveness and moderation. Now, this is something I want to point out to my Malay brothers and to my non-Malay brothers and sisters. Actually, the traditional Malay tradition was inclusiveness. Malay society uh, in 57, right up to the 70s, actually, was rather inclusive. Uh, we need to go back to that. Now, I want to say that conflicts are inevitable in any society, but we need to be proactive in diffusing them. Our MPs should set a good example of mutual respect. Um, our leaders must speak up against hate speech. I think we need more activism in this area. It's not enough to ignore the ignorant. And this is something I want to say to you, Juliet, and uh, because you are a good representative of the media, I think the media can do much to promote intercommunal harmony. Inst instead of highlighting instances of gutter speech, uh, of which there is plenty, the media should highlight initiatives, acts of kindness, heroism, and transcendence that exist everywhere. Every day, in our country, in our neighborhood, actually, people are doing wonderful things to each other. Uh, for example, uh, two years ago when there was very bad floods, look at how people reached out to each other, irrespective of race or religion. I, I think the NGOs should mobilize the enlightened and the moderates into a moral force. I, I, I think all this is a continuing journey. Tunku got it started, then it got derailed, and it is time for us to begin all over again. Thank you.
Thank you so much, uh, gentlemen, for joining me today. Um, any last message that you gentlemen would like to leave our listeners with? Yes, apart from wishing Tuku happy birthday. Uh, yes. You know, uh, you know we, we love to have uh, these conversations about Tunku's life. And thank you very much for having us on BFM, Julia. Absolutely. Yes, I, I, I also want to add, uh, though it's a few days late, but uh, I wish to say gongi for choi to all my all our Chinese <laughs> listeners. Thank you. Definitely. Well, you know, of course, uh, both of you are, as I mentioned, uh, trustees of Yaya Santungu Abdurrahman. And of course, uh, you know, we spoke about this back in August, you know, all the different uh, work that the Yaya San does. Uh, and of course, you know, if folks want to find out more, they just need to head to that website, which is yayasan.org.my. Find out about the good work that, you know, Johan Prof and everyone working there are doing. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash learn or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.